Uh, as you typically know, if you've heard me preach at least once, uh, I love asking questions uh, uh, in preaching. And this morning, I want to start with what I think is a pretty big question, a pretty important question, and it's just simply this. How is what you believe impacting how you live? How is what you believe impacting how you live your life? Uh, not just in the big moments of life, as it were, uh, but in the day-to-day. Uh, we all believe we're all believers. I realize that um, some of us have different beliefs or, or different ideas, but the fact remains the same. We all believe in someone or something, and what we believe is shaping who we are, shaping who we're becoming. Um, so bottom line, what we believe has an impact on how we live, uh, on who we're becoming. So just want to start with this question of how is what you believe impacting how you live. I've spent uh, a lot of time just in pastoral ministry over the years, uh, meeting with all sorts of different people, all sorts of stories and backgrounds, and um, I can't put a number to it, but a a high percentage of what I do with people is literally seeking to undo what has been done, Uh, meaning there's different lies that they believed about themselves or lies that they believed about other people or lies specifically about what they believed about God. And much of their life was shaped around something that just wasn't true. Someone said something to them or said something about them, uh, or someone told them something about God, and it began to shape their relationship with God. Um, This is a a small example, even a silly example, but I remember uh, in fifth grade. How many of you remember back to fifth grade? uh, Teachers have a very influential role Uh, on students' lives. Uh, It's a great privilege to serve as a teacher. Uh, So if you're a teacher, it's a great responsibility, Uh, but you have an incredible voice in people's lives. And I grew up, I was a kid who grew up with a really bad learning disability and um, had a hard enough time reading and doing speech therapy and all these crazy things. And and I remember my first time uh, trying to take a foreign language. It was actually a little bit, it was beyond fifth grade, actually. It was in high school, freshman year. And I remember my Spanish teacher, uh, Mr. Danigian. And uh, I remember my first ever attempt at trying to take a foreign language. I had a hard enough time with English, nonetheless learning Spanish. And I remember he called me stupid. And it was right in front of the entire class. And, you know, when you're a kid, you're just try to let it roll off of you and all that kind of thing, and you don't want to feel even more stupid because someone called you that, so you just kind of laugh with it, and as the class is laughing. But freshman year on, that really began to shape how I viewed myself. Uh, and I used what his one comment was to launch me into a world of just being really lazy. Uh, since I believed that I was stupid, I just used my stupidity as an excuse to be a slacker uh, and just did what I needed to do to get by. Again, this is a small, small example, but how often has someone said something to you and it began to shape how you viewed yourself, how you viewed other people, or how ultimately you view God? Wrong belief, especially wrong belief about God, wrong belief about yourself, wrong belief about other people will really lead you to live a life that is off. Now, I know there's been lots of jokes, if you've been paying attention to the news or Twitter or Facebook, that uh, Judgment Day was supposed to happen yesterday. Well, there was 
a couple hundred people, if not a little bit more than a thousand people who gave themselves to this belief that Jesus was coming back and Jesus was coming back yesterday. Now, I personally believe that Jesus is coming back. I think the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back. I do think it's silly to think that we can name the exact time uh, and the exact same date, uh, as it were, of when he's going to come back. That's what these people believed. And guess what? They orientated their entire life over the last year around May 21st, 2011. Now, I don't know what these people are doing today, but I guarantee there's a lot of discouragement. I don't think there's much celebration going on of, oh, awesome, he didn't come back. I think they really believed, hundreds and hundreds of people believed that Jesus was coming back. A wrong belief will lead you to live life that is off. Like how uh, Charles Spurgeon said it like this, nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. I really like how Spurgeon said it. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. We are all believers here. And again, I can see that we might not all believe the same thing, but what you believe will impact how you live. And if you want to live rightly with yourself and how you understand yourself, view yourself, if you want to live rightly with how you understand the world, the culture around you, it starts by having a right belief about God. So what do you believe about God? What do you, as you sit here today, some of you have been sitting in church your entire life. Some of you, this is your first time sitting in church in years, if not longer. So as you sit, wherever you are on a spiritual spectrum, what is it that you really believe about God? Because however you answer that question, it will shape how you live, how you live in relation to God and relation to yourself, relation to, uh, to those around you. Do you believe that it's possible to know God? Now, if you answer yes, that it's possible to know God, then how? Then how, how do you answer that question? Again, you, we all have belief. So what is it you believe about God? Do you believe you can know him? And if you say, no, I don't believe well, you believe that for a reason, and I would ask you why. Why do you believe that you cannot know God in a real way, in a genuine way, in a personal way, in a way that actually changes your life now and eternally speaking as well? Now, if you answer the question of, I do believe that I can know God, well, I'll ask the same question. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? And how do you believe that you can have that relationship with God? Do you believe that you work your way there? That there are certain things that if you do A and B, it will eventually add up to C, C being relationship with God? Do you believe it's a lifelong process that if I just do position myself here and I do this certain thing and do that certain thing, then in time I will gradually evolve in my knowledge of God and my relationship with God? There's a lot of people who know God. They know a lot about God. They have factual information about God. 
They could tell you maybe lots of, in a trivial pursuit game, in God, they might have all of the answers. But there is a difference of knowing about God and ultimately knowing God in a very personal way, in a real way. How you, what you believe about God will shape how you relate with him. The people that Paul is writing to, his letter in Rome, they were really struggling with this question of, and they were divided over, we think we understand what it is to believe in God, but we're divided over what we believe about how one can have a relationship with God. See, much of the letter of Romans is Paul trying to undo a belief that they had that the one way that you could have a relationship with God was to follow the law, was to follow rules and and laws and regulations. And the belief was, if I do this, if I live up to the letter of the law, if I live up to whatever the traditions might be, that will eventually equal a relationship with God. And Paul, throughout his letter of Romans, is trying to say, no, what you believe about God and how you re- what you believe about how you relate with God is off. And if you're off there, you will be off across the board. And so is that how you relate with God? Like them, they believed and they really believe this. There's one way to relate with God, rules, regulations, restrictions, the law, observe them in their in their in their fullest sense of the uh, of fullest sense of obeying all of those rules and regulations, you'd have a relationship with God. Now, just let me ask a question. Bless you. If your relationship with God was based solely on your performance, solely based on your works, on your doing this or doing that, if it was absolutely based on your performance, can you imagine what day-to-day life would look like? If that's you, if you're believe that the one way to relate with God is through works, through performance, uh, paying attention to rules and regulations, you'd live in a constant state of fear or anxiety. Fear and anxiety of, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Oh my gosh, I just did that. What is that going to do to my relationship with God? See, if you have fear or anxiety in your relationship with God that's stemming from a belief that there's something you could do or could not do, possibly, that gets you out of relationship or favor, as it were, with God. I don't want to live my life day to day always wondering, what is my standing with God? But yet there are a lot of people who live in fear and anxiety. How about if, um, if you believe that work's performance is the way to relate with God? There's some people who just live absolutely defeated and hopeless of, I just can't do enough, so why bother trying? And that belief leads them to live a very defeated lifestyle. Have you ever met that person? It could be you. That just is, they're always down, not because things are bad, but the mentality stemming from their belief is what's the point of even trying? I could never do enough to earn or merit, so why try? Or if you believe that the one way to relate with God is through performance and works, I think one way that would show up in how you live is you're going to have really difficult relationships with other people. Do you know why? Because you'll always be in competition with them. 
You don't want someone else to outdo you, and when you see them outdoing you, outserving you, outgiving you, outshowing up where you think you're supposed to show up, so your relationships with other people, you become quickly, uh, you quick to criticize, quick to judge, you become quick to become insecure with yourself of, you look at the person next to you and be like, wow, man, I'm not like them at all. They're kicking my butt as it relates to working for God. God must be really pleased with them, but look at me and what a great disappointment that person is. Again, I'm going to hammer this home uh, for an entire message. What you believe about God will shape how you live your life, specifically how you relate with God. And if you are off in just one way, your entire relationship with God will be off. If your relationship with God is off, guess what? You are off. The relationships that you have will be off. What the Apostle Paul is trying really hard is to communicate to people that you can have a relationship with God through works, through performance, but it will not lead to a right relationship with God. What Paul is teaching is that there is only one way that we can have a relationship with God, and it's through faith in Jesus. That's it. Now, what I'm excited to talk about today and what I'm excited just that I understand this message, and it's not, I don't say that in a prideful way, is that this took me years and years to understand. I lived much of my life chained to a performance-driven faith. I was a kid who grew up in church. Age five, prayed a prayer that said, Jesus, I love you. And I was a kid at age 10 and 12 and 15 that I could get up in front of people and pray and I would sing and I would share like I was that kid. But so much of my faith journey was based on this lie that I could do things to make God more favorable to, to me. I literally believed the lie that if I read my Bible every single day, that God would be love me more, that God would bless me more, that God would be just, wow, look at that Davis kid. What a winner he is. So many losers around him, they're not reading this Bible. I re- I'm not exaggerating, I really believe that. Until the gospel really began to sink into my life is, Michael, you're either going to try to perform your way to God, or you're going to place your faith in what Jesus has done. And so this is the choice that Paul has been presenting us with throughout Romans, but specifically here in Romans chapter 10, is you've got to make a choice. If you believe the one way to relate with God is through works, everything will be off. It will start showing up in your life. If you believe that there is one way uh, to relate with God and it's through faith alone, guess what? You're going to start to understand things in a new way, things like grace and mercy and compassion and just forgiveness. And those things, because you've received them by faith, will begin to show up in your life kind of getting to the end here, but I'll give you a preview. If you're wondering, why aren't I a more compassionate person? Why aren't I a more forgiving person? Why aren't I more generous? It's all wrapped up in the gospel. It's a good chance if you're not, some of those things are growing in those things, you're not clearly receiving what the gospel is. And Paul says the gospel, the good news is that we can have a relationship with God based on faith in what Christ has done, and faith alone, that's it, not by works. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. He says, Moses 
describes in this way the righteous that is by the law. He quotes this, he says, the man who does these things will live by them. Now, what Paul is saying here, just in this one verse, is that those who seek to relate with God through their own righteousness will have to live not according to their righteous standards, but God's. So if you really want to relate to God through works, through performance, you can't make the standard of what works and the performance are. God has a standard of what absolute righteousness is, and you have to live up to his standard of righteousness, not your standard of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met someone in my entire life, almost 39 now, have not met someone in 39 years who was perfect. Never. Ever. Okay, so in 39 years or 38 years of living, I've not met the perfect person yet. I've not not met one person who could claim that they are absolutely righteous, that they've met God's standards of absolute holiness and righteousness and purity. So what Paul is saying, what I'm trying to drive home is, if you really want to work your way to God, then God's standard is absolute purity, absolute holiness, absolute perfection. You can't make up your own rules of, well, I'll work to God, but here are my terms. I'll do this, I'll do some of this, I'll get tired, take a break, and then I'll come back to it. You can't play by your own rules because you're talking about relating to a God who's absolutely holy. So Paul's saying in verse 5, the man who does these things will live by them. Live by God's standards. If you're going to work, then you've got to work towards righteousness, holiness. And like I said before, I've never met one person who could ever claim that they've arrived or that they have done it. I like how Paul says it in uh, an earlier letter uh, to the church, to the Galatians. He says in chapter 3, clearly, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So not justified by works, but Paul says we're justified, we're made righteous by faith. He goes on in verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we must be justified by faith. I shared that verse uh, last week. The whole point of the law was not to say, hey, this is the standard that you have to meet. It was to point out in us, we can't meet that standard. We need someone who can do that for us. And by faith, that's what we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The law was meant to show us our need for grace, ultimately to show us our need for for Jesus. So those who are justified, meaning declared righteous by God, they have a relationship with God, not based on works, not based on performance, but based solely and only on faith in Jesus alone. Now, here's a question. If righteousness, meaning those who are right with God, comes through faith, where do you get that faith? I mean, can you buy it? Can you work for it? Where do you pick up that kind of faith? Throughout Paul's letters in Romans and the New Testament, it talks about, you're going to live by faith. Well, where do you get faith? I would hope that some of us are like, wow, I don't want to do the works thing. I don't want to do the performance thing. If relating rightly with God is through faith, then where does faith come from? What I love about what Paul teaches here in these next few verses is faith is actually born in the heart. This is not something that you can go attain or work towards It's something that 
you receive from God in the depths of who you are. He says this in, in verse 10, chapter 6, chapter 10, verse 6 and 7. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, and then verse 7, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Paul's saying the righteous, they've got a heart that talks, and the language of your heart is not saying this, and it's not saying that. Now, I'm not sure if you knew this, but your heart speaks. Your heart actually speaks very loud. And do you know how your heart speaks? Your, vo- your life gives voice to your heart. So if you want to see what's in the depths of a man's heart and the depths of a woman's heart, just watch them. Just spend a day observing them. You'll know what's in their heart. I love how Proverbs actually communicates that 27 verse 19 says, as water reflects a face, so man's heart reflects the man. You want to know what's the condition, the shape of your heart. And when we're talking about heart, we're not talking about a physical heart. We're talking about the core of who you are, who you are as a man, who you are as a woman. Faith, Paul says, is spe- starts in the heart, but your heart is speaking. And the very thing that Paul says is, your heart is not saying, uh, this is not faith of heart to say, well, how do I ascend? How do I get up to heaven? Or how do I get down below? It's not trying to figure out, well, what do I need to do to get up there or to get down there? That is a heart that is saying, how do I work my way up there, or how do I work my way down there? Maybe if I go down there, I'll pay the penalty for my own sin so I can eventually get back up there. A heart of faith is not questioning, is not wondering what I need to do to ascend or descend, because a heart of faith looks and says, well, Jesus has already completely done that. He has descended, meaning Jesus, being fully God, came to earth and became a man, was without sin at all. Jesus, uh, as it says in uh, verse 6 and 7, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Meaning Jesus has already come to us. Jesus lived perfectly, died the death, and was resurrected back to life. I don't need to do something. My heart doesn't need to question something that Jesus has already accomplished. So, As you consider your heart, what is your heart actually saying? Paul's saying one heart is clearly saying you're going to work your way there. You're going to go up or down, but you're going to figure out a way to get to God. Is that what your heart is saying? Paul goes on in verse chapter 10, verse 8 through 10. He says this, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just want to read verse 9 one more time. It says this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. goes on in verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Justified means declared righteous. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
at the heart of just these three verses right here, Paul is defining, he's answering the question, what it ultimately means to be a Christian. In these short few verses, we know for a fact what God is saying, what it means to be a Christ one, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved. And Paul said it's two things, belief that Jesus is alive. That means you don't consider Jesus as just a good teacher, a good prophet, a good man. You believe that Jesus is in fact alive, that God raised him from the dead and he's alive today. And because of that, flowing from that heart that believes that Jesus is alive is one who confesses this, he's also Lord. And to say that Jesus is Lord is another way of saying that Jesus is king, meaning I've submitted my life to him. He's not only alive, I believe that in my heart, but my confession. Remember, the heart speaks. And as a heart believes that Jesus is alive, flowing from my heart is a confession that says Jesus is Lord. So here's just a, a, I think, a, a simple question, but it should be a question you really have an answer to. Are you a Christian? If you want to know if you are a Christian, have you believed in your heart, faith, belief in your heart that Jesus is alive? And flowing from that heart that believes that Jesus is alive, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? If you answer yes to that question, I've made that, that belief is in my heart that Jesus is alive. I've confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, then you're a Christian. Now, some would argue and some would just say, that is just too easy. That's cheap grace. That's easy believism. It, can, it can't be just that simple. This is too easy. There has to be more. Let me ask you this question, if you're at all thinking that, and even if there's just one of you thinking that, let me ask just this question. Do you really believe that it's easy, easy to believe that Jesus is alive? Do you really believe from where you're sitting and where your heart condition is, do you really believe that it's easy to have this belief in your heart that Jesus is alive? Because by the fact that you're testifying that Jesus is alive, that you have that belief, do you know what you're agreeing to? That he was dead, that he was killed, that he was murdered. And so for me to believe in my heart that Jesus is alive, I am believing who Jesus claimed to be. It is absolutely silly to believe in my heart that Jesus is alive if I don't even believe that Jesus was crucified, was dead. So is it really that easy to believe that Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, that means he died. And if he died and you believe that he rose again, he rose again for a purpose. And what your confession of your heart, what you believe in your heart is saying is if he's alive, that means I'm no longer living, Christ is living in me. Paul says this pretty clearly in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 14. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
So if you think it's easy just to say, I believe in my heart that Jesus is alive, you better know what you're actually believing in your heart. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again, that those who have that belief no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died and rose again. So again, is it really easy to believe that? Is it really easy to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? Because what you're doing when you confess, this is not just words, by the way. Okay, so for someone to say, I believe in my heart, I confess with my mouth, we're talking about a possession of faith, that you possess a belief or a faith flowing from that is a confession. So I wanted to be clear on if someone makes a statement that Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is, he's my master. Jesus is in charge of my life. I don't live a life that when I get in over my head, then I'll go check in with Jesus. Or I'm not living my life where I'm doing my things, doing it my way, and then on occasion I'll check in and be like, hey, Jesus, you cool with this. Like if you really believe that Jesus is Lord of your life, then what Jesus says, you do. If Jesus tells you to go, you go. If Jesus tells you to speak, you speak. If Jesus tells you to give, you give. If he is really Lord, Master, King, you don't argue it. There's no debate. There's no confusion. It's simple as Jesus has told me this, therefore I do it. So I'll go back to the question, is it really easy to say Jesus is alive and I believe that? And is it really easy to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? I would contend no. That is the miracle of miracles. When I meet a man or a woman who says, I believe in my heart that Jesus is alive and confess that he is my Lord, my King, that is the biggest miracle I will ever see in my life. You can put a blind man in front of me and they could be healed and I'd say, that's, that's awesome. But you put another man in me in front of me whose heart was hardened towards God and his heart is now softened to confess, to believe that Jesus is alive and he confesses him as that is a class A miracle. I like how Augustine said it. He says, I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. The greatest miracle you will ever experience is a heart change. A heart that was once rebellious, that was once hardened, that was once at war, was an enemy of God, bent on doing your own thing. When that heart is changed, wow, that's the gospel. That is the grace of God at work in your life. It's not easy. This is not cheap grace. This is not easy believism, as it were. For a man or a woman to confess, to believe that Jesus is alive and confess him as Lord, as King, that is a class A miracle right there. Because if you believe that and are confessing that, you will no longer be able to live life as normal. Because you're not confused as to who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And you're not confused as to what Jesus' role in your life is. Right belief will lead towards right living. So if you're in a place where you're thinking, man, my life is just at best chaotic. 
It seems off. It doesn't seem right. I would challenge you to consider, is there something that you are believing about God that is just not true? If you're off in a small fraction, your life will be off in a huge margin. So if you are in a place of experiencing something where you just don't feel right, you just feel off, go back to what is it you are really believing about God? Right belief leads towards right living. I wanted to finish uh, this morning with asking a question of, well, what does it really practically look like? If I am the one who believes that Jesus is alive, I've confessed him as my Lord, and the promise is that person is saved. They are a Christian. What does that life ultimately look like? What does a saved person look like? What does a Christian look like? I know what it looks like because I've met them. I used to be one where I believe something. I said I believe something. I said I confess something, but it didn't show up in my life. I was still working towards God. So when the gospel, you really believe that Christ is alive and you're not confused as to who he is in your life as Lord, what does that life look like? And I'm just going to give you three and finish with this. Number one is just simply this. We are absolutely confident in Christ, meaning my confidence is in Christ and Christ alone. He says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you put your trust, meaning if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and one and only who brings you to God, then you can have unshakable confidence before God. Now, the thing that shakes people's confidence before God is what? Their works, their performance. I just sinned. I just did this. I thought this. I went here. I said that. I responded to that person this way. What rattles us is our performance, our works. And so again, if I'm feeling somehow off in my relationship with God, I typically look at, well, I'm not reading my Bible, or I'm not praying, or I'm not giving, I'm not serving, I'm not, I go through a list of things I'm not doing. If you are a Christian, and the gospel has penetrated your heart, believe that he's alive, confess that he is Lord, you will have unshakable confidence in Christ. The unshakable, unshakable confidence that you will never, before God, be put to shame. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news that no matter what you do or don't do, if you believe in your heart, he is alive, confess he is Lord, you have unshakable confidence that before God, you are declared completely righteous. I love the end of verse 11. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I like how Peter actually says it in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What Jesus did in his life, his death, his resurrection was to bring us to God. If your faith is in Christ, Christ alone, he's brought you to God. You can have absolute, complete confidence, unshakable confidence, that even when you sin, your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, future, completely covered not because of what you did or, or will do or think about doing, but because of Christ. 
Paul says it, we looked at this a few months back in Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You believe in your heart, he's alive, confess with your mouth, he's Lord, unshakable confidence in Christ. Never to be put to shame before God. Number two, so the first one is we're absolutely confident in Christ. Number two, we are to be joyfully generous. I'm answering the question, if you've forgotten already, is what does this lifestyle look like? Faith of heart, confession of mouth, what does it look like? I'm confident. But guess what? I'm not prideful in myself. I'm confident in Christ. Number two is we are to be joyfully generous. 12 through 13 in Romans 10 says this, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can I just tell you, this is such an incredible message that the gospel is not just for you. It's for the person sitting in front of you, behind you, to the side of you. It is not just for one group of people, one ethnic background. One. It is for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of Christ will be saved. The message of the gospel is it's not just for some people, it is for all people. When John Calvin was wrestling with this during the time of the Reformation, this is what he said. Since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our unbelief. The invitation has been given, and it's to all. If there's something preventing you from entering in, it is not God standing in your way. It's you standing in the way with something called unbelief of heart. And typically what the unbelief is, is I've got to do something more on top of this. I, it's just, I can't say that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that he's raised from the dead and that's it. I've got to add to it. And I love this picture of this second one. We are to be joyfully generous. If I learned anything about the gospel, if I learned anything about God through this gospel, is that God is generous. If you were at all confused about the generosity of God, you just have to look to the gospel message. I love how Paul says it. He richly blesses all who call upon him. I think a lot of people live their life as if God is really stingy, holding out on us. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who richly blesses those who call upon him who richly bestows grace and mercy, compassion, forgiveness on all who call upon him. Now, if I know that, if that's the gospel message that I have received, because how this works out in my life, if I've received the generosity of God through this gospel, you know what? You should be the most generous person on the planet. If you are a Christian, believe in my heart, Jesus is alive, confess with your mouth that he is Lord. One practical, huge implication for how you live is you should be the most generous person. You should be incredibly generous in forgiveness. When someone wrongs you, you know who's the first to forgive? You are. Why? Because God's forgiven you. Never once could you ever accuse God of saying, 
God, I, I, I sinned and I'm really sorry. And you got God on the other line. And he's like, wow, this is a big one. Uh, I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to have a, a conference call with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And when we hang up, we'll give you a call in about a week, two weeks tops. That's never happened. As soon as I confess Jesus, I'm sorry for my pride. I'm sorry for whatever the sin may be. Michael, forgiveness. If God has been forgiveness, generous in his forgiveness with me, you know what? If the gospel is at work in my life, I will be the most generous person when it comes to forgiveness. How about speech? You are the first person. If you're a Christian, you should be the first person dishing out compliments. You should be the first person in line saying, I just want to encourage you. I'm so blessed by you. I'm so encouraged by you. If the gospel's at work in you, then you are generous with your speech. If the gospel is at work in you, you know what? You're generous with your time. Read through the gospels and see how many times Jesus was going somewhere and he was interrupted. Not once did Jesus say, would you get the heck out of my way? I've got a plan. You're getting in the way of my plan. Move on. I know we live in a culture that says you need to have boundaries and you need to guard your time. You need to protect your time. I get that. But I think what most people believe when they are thinking that is I need to keep myself safe. I don't want to give of myself. I don't want to give of my space. I don't want to give of my time. I just don't see that in Jesus and I certainly don't see that in God. Because any time that I come to him, Anytime scripture says, as you draw near to God, guess what? God draws near to you. I realize some of you might be thinking, Michael, you're missing the point. You need to have boundaries in your life. No, I think you're missing the point of learning how to be generous with yourself, learning how to be generous with your time, learning how to be generous with your finances. You know what your financial condition should look like? It should look like this. My hands are not in my pockets. My hands are not clenched tight like this. I want to be the first to give to the point of it hurts. I'm not talking about being a bad steward of your finances. I'm talking about being generous with your finances. This is such a small example, but this is what we did yesterday. I wanted people to know that it was free. I must have said that on the megaphone a hundred times. It's all free. There's no charge. This is such a small example of the generosity of God, of a community in a church trying to be generous as God has been generous to us. If you are a Christian and believe in your heart that Jesus is alive, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will have unshakable confidence in Christ and Christ alone, and you will be joyfully generous to a fault Man, if someone's going to accuse you of something, let it be they're accusing you of just being too generous. That is a great thing to be accused of. Number three, finish with this one. We are to absolutely confident in Christ, joyfully generous. And number three, we are absolutely vocal about Jesus. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 16. How then... Can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's this picture of there are so many people out there who have not heard this good news, have not heard the gospel. Guess who gets to tell people? The Christians, defining Christian as believe in your heart, Christ is alive, confess that he is Lord. It is on us, and it is a great joy and privilege to be able to share with people this good news. I remember hearing, I don't know who said this, but the message was simply, Vegas has nothing to say, but they say it so well. Christians have everything to say, but we say it so poorly and so infrequently. You go to Vegas, it's, you don't know what they're saying, but it just it sounds really good, and it looks really good. They're saying so much, but they have nothing to say. If you're a Christian, you have everything to say, and it is the most important message to communicate, that you can have life with God, not based on works, not based on performance, but solely based on faith, that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus did. You believe that he did raise from the dead. You confess that he is Lord. That is incredible news. I don't have to work my way to God, buy my way to God, perform my way to God. The good news is God's made it possible through his son Christ. Now, yesterday, I'll pick on yesterday. It was a great example of the gospel, but that's all it was, was an example. I cannot go around living my life just saying, well, I'm going to set an example, but I'll never tell anyone. You will have a bunch of people who are utterly confused as you just seem like a really nice person who's pretty generous, but I have no idea why. Too many Christians believe, I just, I just need to live a, a really gospel, Christ-centered life. And hopefully, just maybe by observing me, they'll pick up on the nuance that I'm not working my way to God. It's faith that's at work in me doing these things. The Christian who believes I don't have to ever say anything about the gospel, about Jesus, about a relationship to God is potentially leading people astray because they could look at your example and say, man, you go to church all the time. I hear you reading your Bible a lot. You go to these things called life groups. Your church gets, gives good stuff away for free. You seem like a really good person. Maybe if I do the good things that you're doing, you lead people astray. We set an example for people, but our example cannot be void of the message that we give voice to. And by the way, this is not a message of like, fine, I'll go share the gospel with someone. My gosh, if this is my lot in life, if I have to be the guy that tells people that God loves them and has made a relation, fine. If that's my lot in life, then I'll take one for the team. If that's your attitude towards vocalizing the gospel message, I'm not sure you get the gospel. Because there was, at some point, someone told you, and when your heart received the gospel, I remember when I received the gospel, when I understood the gospel, I was like, wow, I felt so free. The, the chain of performance just fell off my ankles of, wow, this is the gospel? By faith, that's it? Not working, not performing, not trying to earn, not trying to merit? I was so thankful to the person who shared with me the message of the gospel. If you are a Christian and have confessed Christ as Lord and have believed in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, absolute confidence in Christ, 
joyfully generous, and absolutely vocal about Jesus. What you believe is showing up in how you live. So I'll go back to where I started. Maybe how is your life really revealing what you believe? If you believe the gospel, that Christ is alive and that he is your Lord, it's going to show up in how you live. Now, there's some people might be here today and, well, Michael, now I'm worried that I'm not a Christian. I'm okay with you to wrestle with that, but not because you're thinking somehow I'm not working enough or I'm not doing enough or, no, I want you to wrestle with, is my faith in Christ and Christ alone? Do I believe that it's Jesus who is alive and that's, he's my Lord? And I want you to know if that's you, if you've done that, then you're a Christian. When we celebrate communion, you be the first to run up here and say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that I can have forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God. You're the one who sings the loudest when we worship. Why? Because there's something going on in your heart and your words, your, your life is giving voice to what's happened in your heart. If you're here today and you're like, wow, if that's what the de definition of a Christian is and that's just not me, I've been trying to earn it, trying to work my way there, buy my way there, serve my way there. If that's you, please stop that. Repent of that attitude, that belief that you've got to work your way towards God. Repentance means I stop walking this way and I start walking this way. This is the way of works. That's the way of grace. I'm walking now towards grace, walking in grace. If you're not a Christian, Become a Christian today and go back to, well, is it really as easy as believing that Jesus is alive and confessing him as Lord? That is the most dangerous thing I've ever done is to make that belief in my heart and confession of my mouth because it's radically changed my life. And what I mean by that is it's radically changed my life from being a selfish, self-absorbed, prideful person who was bent on making everything about me to saying, I don't want it to be about me anymore. I want it to be about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, please know it. It is our heart's desire that you would believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is in fact God's son and is alive and alive today.